This week on Life and Faith. So many people in political processes are about defending in a negative sense, you know, stopping bad things from happening. It's like, well, why don't we make good things happen instead? You are braver and stronger than you know. I do worry sometimes that that's been lost. He survived the Russian Revolution. Within a month, I was looking for a job. It's a very strange experience. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. In the midst of our angst over the cost of living, rising interest rates and the lack of affordable properties to buy or rent, which are all serious problems, we sometimes can forget those who are right at the most vulnerable end of that challenge and who each night are looking for a space to lie down where they won't get wet, where they can stay warm and out of danger and where they can keep a few of their belongings close by them. There are some pretty alarming statistics when it comes to homelessness in this wealthy nation of ours, aren't there? Daily, 70,000 Australians seek help from specialist homelessness services, and we believe there are many more people who never seek assistance at all. One in six who seek help with homelessness are under the age of 10, and one in three have experienced family and domestic violence. And there are lots more people 55 and over in this category, and women especially are vulnerable. My guest today is someone you get a sense might be able to help do something about all this, and he's interested in doing that. Dr. Rob Stokes worked as a lawyer, then got a PhD in planning law, and then went into politics. For 15 years, he was the member for Pittwater on Sydney's northern beaches in the New South Wales State Parliament. And he served as Minister for Education, for Planning and the Environment, and Infrastructure, Cities and Public Transport, among other things. He recently retired from that political role, but he has taken on the task of being chair of the Faith Housing Alliance, which is a peak body that draws together people of different faith groups to tackle homelessness in Australia. And we'll get to that shortly, but I wanted to hear about Rob's life in politics as well. And I began simply by asking him, how tired he was at the end of that part of his life. It is exhausting. Uh, Public life is exhausting. Elected public life is exhausting. It should be exhausting. Mm. I had the opportunity to uh, talk to some new politicians who'd been freshly elected, and I told them to just remember that you're always at work. Uh, If something happens at 2am on a Sunday morning, you're at work. So you need to live your life to a different pace because you're never actually not on duty. That's the nature of the job. Not sure that's going to work in the recruiting stakes, Rob, for people. No. And that's why I personally felt that for me, for the season I was at, there was a use-by date for state politics just because in my view, if you're doing it properly, you Go and tuck yourself out. Yeah. And you're feeling okay now? Have you had a chance to sort of yeah, draw it's, a breath? It's lovely to reconnect uh, with family and friends, some of whom I had to sort of keep at arm's length mm. because of the nature of the job, and to, I guess, rediscover my voice a little bit because you've always perceived, obviously you are partisan when you're in a political process, but sometimes you're a member of a team. So some of your views or attitudes, uh, you've got to sacrifice in the interests of 
of what you can achieve as part of a team and uh, being able to, to rediscover that voice has been quite refreshing. Mm, I bet. I want to ask you a bit more about that later. But as you reflect on that period of your life, what are some of the most satisfying aspects of it and the different roles that you've played? Some of the most satisfying things include the capacity to turn things you're passionate about into reality. Mm. Uh, so to build the foundations under the castles in the sky that you, you like to think about. With that, of course, comes the responsibility that you can't just say what you think, you've got to do what you think. Uh, and so as a result, some of your wildest dreams have to be moderated a bit. A role I was particularly passionate about was trying to provide more access to active transport. I feel really passionately that if people can cycle and walk and run more safely, um, that we'll have, end up with a better, healthier, freer society full of people with better mental health. And to be able to help to achieve that, that's really, really satisfying. And so when I see kids playing in a park or, or riding down a, a bike path that I help to, to generate, that gives you a real sense of inner peace and satisfaction. I bet it does. And it's sort of things where you can... Yeah, as you say, you can actually drive past and say, yeah, we, we did that. It must, that must be fun. Yeah, and the thing I'd also add to that, though, is the really genuinely humbling thing about that, and humble in the true sense of the word, which is, you know, from the earth, is it, it's grassroots. You've got to work with other people. If you think you can just impose what you want, you're destined to fail. You've really got to viscerally understand a community. Sure, you can lead a community, but you've got to start from a, a perspective mm. of understanding what it is they want. Were there, were there any of those episodes, if you like, of being able to do that well that you can remember that sort of come to mind? Oh, yeah. I don't want to be, um, a, you know, an advocate in my own cause here. Um, but no. yes, there are. I probably don't want to mention them because that sounds a bit uh, self-aggrandizing. <laughs> but so. can you talk about them in sort of <laughs> generic terms, perhaps? Yeah, well, look, one, early on in my political journey, and again, I'm not claiming credit for it because there were so many people who were part of this, but it's just a little one, a little vignette, if you like. Mm. There's a beautiful little spot in my community of Pittwater called Currawong Beach. It's a, I'd encourage all your listeners to go and have, have a look at this place. It's beautiful. It is classic heritage buildings in bushland on a perfect little beach surrounded by a national park. It was going to be flogged off and uh, redeveloped as a gated community suburb mm. for 35 houses for the mega rich. We were able to stop that from happening, uh, acquire it for the public, restore it, and so it's been beautifully restored. It's now available for anyone to go and stay there. For It's reasonably affordable for families to go and stay there for a weekend. It's a beautiful, peaceful place for people to have a picnic. If we hadn't have gotten involved, that would be a gated community for 35 mega-wealthy families. <laughs> well, that's a great story and very satisfying and, I think, classic, actually, example of being able to intervene in something and produce something good. Yeah, it was it's 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 a real sense of satisfaction for all the people involved and there were a lot. There's something common to those portfolios that I mentioned. It seems to me that you were trying to build something of lasting value. And you're still doing that actually and we'll come to that in a moment. But does that feel like a, what you were doing there in these spaces? That's what politics is ultimately all about. The yeah. ancient Greeks divided society into two parts, the oikos and the polis. And the polis was the part where you worked together to achieve things that were of common benefit for everyone in the state. So that's what politics ultimately should be all about, is building something of benefit for the collective. 
it's not always what people think of when they think of politics. No, it's not. And sadly, I actually think it's often not what politicians themselves think of when they think of politics. Mm. Uh, something that I feel really strongly about is it's really important to go into politics with a sense of your philosophy. What are the principles by which you will make policy decisions? And then once you've done that, the art of politics is explaining them to the community and, and why you have made those decisions. But before you even get to policy, you've got to start with the principles, and that starts with the philosophy that brought you there in the first place. Was it lonely in this role? Yeah, uh, politics is incredibly lonely because, you know, that's that old saying, uh, victory has, has many parents, but uh, defeat is an orphan. Uh, but ultimately, as a minister, you are accountable. Uh, often you're accountable for decisions you didn't make. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's not much point telling people that. Uh, you've just got to say sorry. Uh, and sorry is a, is a really powerful word in English, but it's a misunderstood word. I wish there were more... Uh, words for it. People tend not to say it because they think you are therefore saying that you are personally responsible. I don't think that's what it means at all. It just means I empathise, I understand this didn't turn out the way it should have and I am responsible for being extraordinarily regretful for the situation we find ourselves in. I don't think you're, you're necessarily owning the action but you are owning the consequences of it and I think that's a very powerful thing to do. You're not going to like this question, especially from what you said a minute ago, but I've heard people who worked in government departments, when you were the minister of it, say how much they liked you. And I don't think that happens every time with the minister and then the, you know, the government department. But let's imagine it's true for the point of the conversation, Rob. Could you put your finger on why that might have been, if, if that was the case? Well, um, that's really lovely to hear, if that's the case. Maybe it's because I respected them, and I don't mean that in a sense of, aren't I wonderful, I respected them. It was more, it was, I respected that they knew more about issues than I did, so I listened to them, and I wanted to empower them. Um, one thing I feel passionate about is using my skills to empower others to serve, and so when you've got this incredible public service, and they're incredibly talented, and access to all these amazing resources, if you can help them and free them to do amazing things, then you get to bask in the reflected glory of whatever they do and you're mobilising all these resources of things you couldn't possibly do by yourself. Um, so maybe that was it. It was a sense of I genuinely respected them because I wanted them to achieve great things. Yeah, and see, public service takes many different forms, doesn't it? So there's the role you were playing, but there's all these other people. Is it still a, an attractive thing for people to get into? I think... On the other side, it might be a bit raw to tell people to get into public office. I think any of your listeners who want some encouragement to get into public office, I'm more than happy to provide it. I'll tell you, go in with your eyes wide open. Don't expect to get anything out of it personally. Expect to give a lot. Uh, and it's a wonderful opportunity to do that. And if you've got a lot to give, then that's what you should do. I think the public service is a profoundly valuable thing to do as well and probably easier on family, better remunerated. And even ironically, if you're a policy wonk, you could probably get even more done in the public service than you can in the political process. Yeah. So I certainly think the public service is something really, really valuable for people who are humble, who are reflective, and who want to get stuff done. It's a great career. 
I want to ask you about community because you would have experienced all kinds of different examples of that as a politician. What are the ways we still do community well and where are we a bit lacking? Sporting clubs. Uh, Australia has this incredible history and legacy and it's something I think quite unique up my way my community surf clubs I mean surf clubs are family Mm. Uh, they're beautiful places they're inclusive places regardless of your uh, level of ability your age there's a spot for you and uh, the beautiful thing about the Australian beach is no one cares what you look like you know how much money you got Anyone's allowed on the beach, and, and they're just really inclusive places. And I think the way the, the local footy club, the local cricket club, increasingly seeing women's sport, and that's been an epiphany for me. Uh, my daughters were never really into sport that much, and I, I feel embarrassed to say it. I was, when I saw the Matildas, and they were into it, I was, hang on, mm. they identify with these sporting heroes, whereas the blokes, well, they're not blokes. So I think um, women's sport is now this great area where we do community well because people feel included. So I think sport is something that demonstrates how well we do community. And what about areas that we probably can do a bit better? I'm going to say another one we do well, um, volunteering, uh, rural fire service. I mentioned surf lifesaving, but SES, you know, we love being larrikins, but we do it professionally. You know, you look at these volunteer organisations, they muck around and have a bit of fun, but they're deadly serious about what they do and they do it really well. Uh, I think Australians like to pretend that we're unprofessional, but Mm. we really do our jobs well. Mm. I think where we're not as good tends to be in certainly political engagement, I think most of middle Australia has abandoned the political process. Mm. And I go into, and I can say this now, you know, obviously love my local uh, branches of the Liberal Party, but sometimes I'd go to a local branch meeting and I'd come out thinking, now I know precisely what the community don't think about an issue. And I suspect my colleagues in the Labor Party could probably say the same thing from some of their branch meetings. Um, It's not always the case, and I hasten to add that, but often they've been hollowed out uh, so that people who just have... Average people paying down a mortgage or raising kids uh, see that as something that doesn't relate to them. Yeah. Uh, so we've abandoned that. Um, I think we're seeing the same in our churches, our places of worship. People just aren't engaging. It doesn't seem relevant. Uh, so we're really good on sport and volunteerism. Same as uh, local service clubs, Rotary, uh, all those sorts of service clubs. And interestingly, I saw it in politics in the, in the rise of the Teals. I was really interested there because the Teals were not a team, they were a cause, Mm. whereas the established institutional political parties were teams, not causes. And I think Australians love to support a cause unless it's sport, in which case we'll support a team. But outside sport, Mm. we'll be attracted to ideas, but we won't join and set up an institutional framework around that thing. These days, uh, the public space is so polarised. It seems to have become rapidly so in recent years, particularly in the time you've been in politics. Do you sort of sit here now feeling in any way optimistic about how that can change? Or, you know, what what was your sense of that? Because it does feel like a very intractable polarisation. Yeah, and the answer to it has to be that people need to meet in the middle again. You look back at a lot of the policy reforms in this country in the 80s and through the 90s, it was because basically the major parties agreed on the important issues. 
in one sense, it's a bit of a paradox because you could argue it's a bit anti-democratic when the major parties, you know, represent 80% agree of people, agree with each other. But on the other hand, it's the only way to get progress. Um, the classic example, well, this is going to be a topical one, isn't it? But the voice. Um, I mean, show my hand. I, I can't understand for the life of me why this isn't something that we all agree on. We should celebrate this and do it collectively and collaboratively. But both major parties couldn't resist the opportunity to try and grandstand out of it, I think. And I can see how that happened. But it required people to retreat a little bit from those opportunities and meet in the middle and then find something that you actually disagree on. (laughs) Because I I get the sense when you narrow something like that down to its fundamental purpose, I don't see how that is a matter that really the majority of Australians would disagree on. But when there's an opportunity to create conflict, there's always someone who will see the immediate political benefit in doing it. And it's why on so many issues, um, gee, I'm going to go another one here. I mean, years ago, the resources rent tax, uh, you know, those are resources that are finite, that are incredibly valuable, and that are an inheritance for all Australians. And because we couldn't agree on that, we've made a couple of already very wealthy Australians indescribably wealthy with money that could have been spent on schools, it could have been spent on hospitals, it could have been spent, for goodness sake, on better footpaths and bike paths that would have made people's lives better. Uh, and instead, it's gone to enrich people. And, you know, good on the forest, they're doing great stuff through the Minaru Foundation. But equally, part of me goes, you know what, that money it should belong to every Australian. And uh, I think there was an opportunity there, a cynical opportunity to, to get a victory over one side of politics by running a scare campaign of what this might mean for mining companies. Uh, But I think the end result a decade later is that we've lost an incredible opportunity. And so we've got to, on those big issues, the centre need to agree. Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with Rob Stokes, former New South Wales politician and now chair of the Faith Housing Alliance, which is a peak body that draws together people of different faith groups to tackle homelessness in Australia. So we'll turn to that now, this huge challenge of homelessness in our country and what can be done about it. Having stable accommodation is... Is an, is an absolute must. I think, you know, if you've got that, uh, that takes a lot of anxiety, a lot, a, a lot of doubt away. I wouldn't have a place, and with my income, because I'm on New Start, there's no way I'll be able to afford a place. There's no way. So I'd be homeless for sure. For sure, I'd be homeless. I know it for sure. So, like, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky I've got this place. It's like a godsend for me. It's like, like I said, and when, I, when I say it saved my life, I, I really mean it, you know, it saved my life. That's Ricardo from a clip from Faith Housing Alliance talking about the help he received to get housing when he had no way of doing that himself. Rob Stokes is under no illusions as to how big a challenge homelessness is, but he also thinks something can be done about it. It's a huge challenge, and one of the reasons I was attracted to join this organisation was, first, I felt I had something to offer here, having been involved in planning and and infrastructure policy, and also because I saw that the big voices were institutional for-profit developers. So the mantra of, we've got to increase the supply of new homes, 
is entirely true, but it's a precondition to solving the problem. It doesn't solve the problem by itself. Mm. And those voices that don't get listened to as much, like the faith groups, uh, because they don't have as much power or reach or necessarily influence, uh, it's important that they have a voice too. Because if we just increase, for example, the supply of $2 million homes, that will satisfy the interests of you know uh, institutional capital, um, but we'll just end up with more $2 million homes. <laughs> it doesn't actually solve the problem, which is there's a whole bunch of people through no fault of their own will never be in a position to be able to afford a $2 million home. And even some who might one day will never be able to get there because they can't get on the first rung and they can't get that support and they will be left in a situation where life can only ever get worse because they don't have somewhere safe and secure in which to sleep and to store their goods and to think and to retreat from societies we all do need from time to time. Tell us a bit more about this. So you've got um, a whole lot of different bodies from various faith groups and organisations and, and you're, you guys are trying to pull them together, are you, and work with governments and help solve what is a complex puzzle. It's not a straightforward one, as you said. It's not just a case of let's just pump out more housing. Is that what's going on? Yeah. So effectively, uh, I mean, there's a collection of all different faiths and that's one of the things that also attracted me to this, mm. that it's not any particular faith, but you know, this is an area where traditionally churches have been involved over many, many years. You've got groups like Baptist Care and Anglicare and Fresh Hope, which is the old Churches of Christ. But you've got newer players as well, uh, the Muslim Care, for example, and a whole lot of different denominations and different faith groups. But what we all share is that we are prompted to help solve a social problem from a position of hope in something bigger than ourselves, mm. which is a unique perspective. And also, because of history, often these groups, uh, our members, have really large land holdings that were acquired and built at a time when society looked very different. So, you know, when you drive through a country town or a regional area, you'll often pass a little old church, which is now a private home or a cafe. And I can't help but think... The people who built that place, the people who were baptised there or buried their loved ones there or who, you know, dedicated stained glass windows, would they really want that place to be just a cafe? Maybe they would, but I suspect if there was an opportunity for that place to be reinvented to provide housing for people who had no hope for that, I think those people would be really happy to see that as a legacy. I think that's something worth fighting for. There's been times in history where... And it hasn't always been like this, but where churches have been absolutely refuge for all sorts of need, including accommodation. So, yeah, it's interesting. You've got lots of land that's been historically, now as people are amazed at the land that churches have, for instance. But your sense is there might be ways to kind of deploy some of this to, to meet this need. Yeah, and there's plenty of examples of people doing it overseas. Uh-huh. Um, one example that springs to mind in California was a church that literally just had a one-hectare car park, as you do in the United States. And they thought, well, this is silly. And they gave it to a community housing provider. I think from memory, it's about 45 or 50 uh, one, two, three-bedroom homes they've provided as affordable housing for people who can't um, meet market rents in that area. They've also provided playground facilities, before and after school care, a dementia care group. 
all on the basis of what was a car park. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's just an example of what can be done. There are examples of uh, that happening in Sydney. Uh, Fresh Hope is uh, the old Churches of Christ. They had an old derelict church in Marrickville, for example, 150 metres from the train station. And they partnered uh, with a housing provider and great sustainability architect to develop 55 affordable housing units. Ironically, at the last minute, the council came in and heritage listed the church, <laughs> and uh, it ended up costing 1.5 million, I think, for the church. The church were giving the land for free oh, um, to get through the the various red tape involved, um, and they're building a building that is respectful of what had been there before. They're keeping some elements of the church to locate what it was. But I thought it was sort of ironic that, in one sense, by seeking to save a structure but destroying its use. Arguably, you're being more respectful of heritage if you actually look at, well, what is this land mm. actually used for the, yeah. and paying respect to that. And I think that land served generations of families, um, providing a sense of community. Now it's able to do that again. I wonder if this um, particular role of faith groups in uh, helping to alleviate this problem speaks into the complexity of the problem to begin with, in that it's poverty, there's mental health issues, there's kind of domestic violence often, there's education, there's all these sorts of things that maybe it's, it's not a one-dimensional thing and therefore faith groups, which are not one-dimensional, might have a role in that sense. Yeah, and faith groups because they provide wraparound services. So yeah. that's a unique perspective. I mean, a lot of the um, affordable housing providers are now doing the same thing, yes. but uh, faith groups are I mean, it's in their DNA to provide a sense of community and all those social supports. And often, particularly in areas where, for example, the congregation is just developing a bit of its land for affordable housing, but they're going to stay right next door. It's in their interest to make sure this residential community they're creating is well supported and cared for. Because often people who qualify for affordable or social housing have a variety of complex needs, um, but they have a right to live somewhere as well. And what better way to serve them and also enrich a community than providing those opportunities in areas that might not otherwise be able to accommodate them. And that's what's wonderful about churches and temples and mosques because often they're located really well in the middle of communities where people who qualify for affordable housing ordinarily never have the opportunity to live. That also mean they're close to, if were they to choose it, a community of people, which is often part of the problem, isn't it? Exactly. And church groups I've already spoken to have said part of their challenge is that they can't sustain a congregation because their congregations can't afford to live anywhere near them. And so in one sense, you could argue even there's a bit of self-interest there for faith groups to actually inspire more attendance by actually providing, you know, opportunity for people to live near the services they provide and the community that they want to build. Um, Now, Rob, tell me the way that your faith has shaped the things that you've been drawn to in your life, including your political career, but now this work that you're doing. This has been a developing thought and theme and now overriding philosophy I have toward life, which is in Western culture, we've gone down this rabbit hole of focusing on freedom. And I hasten to add, it's not a rabbit hole, it's really important. But we've got this really narrow view of what we mean by it. And we all fight to defend it, but we don't fight to extend it. <laughs> and if it's, it's almost like this zero-sum game. And I, I see the religious groups doing it as well, that fighting for religious freedom. It's like, no, 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 the best way to 
defend it is to use it. Um, and how do we demonstrate the power of hope and faith in something bigger than ourselves? It's to live it. And that's why I found faith housing so intoxicating as, as a movement to get involved in because it is demonstrating people motivated by faith seeking to change the world. So it's not so much defending freedom in a negative sense from outside attack. It's starting from the perspective, well, here are the freedoms we have and we enjoy. The best way to defend them is to attack with them, Mm -hmm. is to actually not worry so much about our own freedom, but worry more about the freedoms of other people. And what better way to start than with the freedom, the human right to have a safe place to live. I went some years ago, a long time ago now, surfing in South Africa, and what really struck me over there was I didn't feel safe. And I didn't feel that there was a safe place to live. And so ever since then, that's in the back of my consciousness that we take it for granted, so many of us in Australia, but it's not a freedom that we can take for granted. We've got to keep fighting for it and to extend it and just being defensive about it. So many people in political processes are about defending in a negative sense, you know, stopping things, bad things from happening. It's like, well, why don't we make good things happen instead? You've worked in government for a long time, but what was your sense there uh, of the importance of the faith sector, if you like, in doing the sort of work that sustains our society and building social capital? It's not a story that people tend to think of much these days. No, but I don't think our society would work without the work of the faith sector, whether that be in healthcare, whether it be in aged care particularly, because aged care is an area that literally would fall apart because it's not commercial. Um, But in mental health, in all sorts of intangible things that are very difficult to quantify, but you'd certainly know if they were taken away. Um, Because when you look at what a society is, it's a social contract. And the way in which a social contract works is we all say, well, we're going to give a bit in order to get more collectively. And that's ultimately the mission that faith groups are involved in. It's about giving, not about taking. If everyone actually used negative freedom to just enrich themselves, society would fall apart overnight. And a lot of people I've observed, sadly, really are genuinely motivated entirely for themselves. And I met a lot of that in politics. Uh, But fortunately, not everyone's like that, because if everyone was like that, the place would fall apart. Even in our education system, I always thought that we had a pretty reductive view of education, which was it's about getting a job so you can make money for yourself. And it's like, no, 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 education is about supporting the entirety of the community and recognising what your unique gifts and skills are so that you can use them to make a better world for everybody. And sure, if you can enrich yourself in the process, even better, but that's not what it's about. This has been Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity with me, Simon Smart. Thanks for listening. If you know someone you think would appreciate this episode or any other episodes of Life and Faith, please do let them know. And leave us a rating or review. That helps a lot in giving us more exposure to more people. And get in touch with us at podcast at publicchristianity.org. Thanks so much to Rob Stokes. You can see some of what he's involved in these days at Faith Housing Alliance, which is fha.org.au. 
And thanks again to our producer, the unstoppable Alan Douthwaite. Next week. As I've travelled the world and talked to endless strangers and asked them, did they ever have an experience they couldn't explain? I would have asked that question many, many hundreds of times. There's been nobody who said no.